Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Hi, this is Jay Levine from Porter Wright again in our next installment in our Antitrust 101 series. Uh, with me again is Sarah Smith Oberst from Gut Check Analytics. How are you doing, Sarah? Hi, Jay. So last time we left off, we were talking about unilateral conduct uh, issues. Yeah, interesting stuff. Monopolization <laughs> and you know predatory pricing and all of that gray area and soul searching that a company needs to do. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> very I existential. See. Uh, she's learned well. Um, well, now we're going to get into a little bit grayer or murkier areas. And these are areas of, of Section 2 analysis, of unilateral conduct analysis, that often forces people kind of to scratch their heads a little bit because this is out of the mainstream. But it's stuff you really need to think about before you engage in or if you are engaged in it. And again, it's not just whether your company is engaged in this conduct. Is there somebody out there in the industry who is engaged in this stuff and that is harming your business? Right. That, that you have to think about as well in terms of whether you might have a valid claim against them. That's a good point. And, and again, we, we, will, we will talk about sort of if you do think there are uh, companies out there that are engaging in conduct that are harming your company, what are your remedies? You know, uh, litigation is expensive. Um, are there any other remedies? And, and there are other avenues and paths to follow, which we will get to in a, in a later podcast. That'll be a good episode. I hope so. I hope they're yeah. all good. Yeah. Um, so without any further ado, I'm going to entitle this segment Non-Price Predation. What is non-price predation? If you remember before, predation or predatory pricing was where you sold a good below cost in the hopes that you will drive your competitors out of business and then be able to recoup that short-term loss with even greater profits. Right. Okay. So now this is sort of predatory conduct. In other words, conduct that is meant to drive your rivals and competitors out of the market, but you're not doing it through price. You're not doing it by selling something necessarily. You're engaging in conduct that really sort of ushers them out of the market. Okay, this sounds like a blockbuster. <laughs> Give me so, some examples of, of what that what that what kind that of mean? conduct would look like. Okay, so uh, let me give you a couple of um, you know more common um, examples. One would be what we call sham petitioning um, or sham litigation. And what sham petitioning or sham litigation is simply, let's say I sue you, and it's a baseless lawsuit, but I'm suing you because I got money and you don't. Okay. And lawyers, as we all know, are... Expensive. Expensive. I was going to say not cheap, but, <laughs> not you know. Not cheap. <laughs> um, their litigation costs are expensive. There's yes. no, There's no, you know, doubt about that. And I'm engaging in it because, not because I actually think I'll win, or I frankly couldn't care less what the outcome of the case is, but I'm trying to drive you out of business. In the same token, let's say I sham petitioning. I go to the state agency and I try to get rezoning or I try to, and again, I'm not trying necessarily to achieve my objective, but I'm putting you through all of the procedural and ministerial costs Mm -hmm. that will just drive you under. That type of conduct, it's not pricing. I'm not selling anything. Right. But I'm engaged in conduct that is meant to drive you out of business. We, we call often uh, non-price predation conduct that raises rivals' costs. In other words, this is conduct t- targeting at ruining your bottom line by 
raising your expense side of the ledger such that you're not going to be able to stay in business. Wow. Okay. So that, that, is, that is one example. Another example is, and, 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 and I should say, uh, it's not the easiest claim to make, sham petition and litigation. Um, just quickly, uh, the Supreme Court has laid out a two-pronged test for you know whether sham litigation um, is actually sham litigation because as, as I'm sure you all realize there's a lot of First Amendment concerns. I mean you know my ability to seek redress through the courts is a First Amendment right. Right. And you got to be careful about kind of limiting that or chilling that effect. So the Supreme Court in professional real estate investors, um, a case that is oh many a couple decades old already laid out a two-part test. First, the case that challenged the cause of action has to be objectively baseless, essentially almost a Rule 11 type. It's just there's no way this case could have won. But then second, there is a subjective test. In other words, even if it's objectively baseless, but what were you trying to accomplish? Theoretically, if you know, it may be objectively baseless, but you were really, you really thought you could get the remedy and the relief that you were seeking in the lawsuit that would protect you from a sham litigation cause. Because again, we want you to have access to the courts. Right. Similarly, in sham petitioning, you got to be very careful because obviously, petitioning the legislature, and we'll talk about this in a in a future podcast, the various exemptions and immunities to the antitrust laws. But you are you can be as anti-competitive as you want. If you're seeking to, to if you go to Congress and you try to get a bill that will absolutely destroy your competition, you're doing it only to destroy your competition, that is one hundred percent protected. That petitioning of Congress is your First Amendment right, no matter what. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. So the question is, is that how far down the ladder does it go? Does that does that apply to state agencies? Right. Does that apply to local Ordinance um, councils, local zoning, zoning councils, right. example. Okay, so that that requires a little bit more time than what we have right now, and that's where you have to see. But not necessarily are they protected, and therefore you do have to kind of apply the, this two part test to that. There's a lot of intricacies there. Absolutely. Okay. So sham petitioning, sham litigation is one example of a non price predation of raising rivals' costs. What else do you have? Okay. Exclusive dealing. Now, this is a lot more common. An exclusive dealing can come up in both um, Section 1 um, and be subject to the rule of reason or in Section 2. Because, again, if you and I have a contract, that's bilateral conduct. Once right. it's bilateral conduct, it can be subject to Section 1 of the Sherman Act. But the whole point, and certain contracts are not necessarily exclusive, but by its terms, they're de facto exclusive. The point being that if I tie you up or you tie me up in a way that will damage our my competitor's ability to effectively compete in the market, that can be a Section 2 violation because I'm monopolizing the market. And it, it, essentially, it's all about foreclosures. The, the question is, how much of the market are you foreclosing? Let me give you an example from from a case uh, and a client I represented uh, several years ago in a case that went on for a number of years. So I represented a generic um, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturer. Okay. And it wanted to, and it was introducing a generic um, 
a generic pharmaceutical, a generic drug. Well, other now the brand had its own supplier of the active ingredient. It had it had it did it internally. It actually had bought someone, but it had its own internal source for the active ingredient. Its own supply chain. Its own supply chain to create the drug. There was one other company in the in the world that was the allegation that could supply the active ingredient. It was a very sort of dangerous um, active ingredient. Not every um, supplier would manufacture. And there was one others that had an FDA approval to make this active ingredient. And my client signed it to an exclusive agreement. Okay. Lo and behold, a second generic wanted to come onto the market, had no ability to obtain, obtain that active ingredient. Exactly. So therefore, it couldn't get... So therefore, its approval before the FDA was delayed about a year. It's losing money and that whole time. It, it can't come onto the market. We're getting the first mover advantage. We're, we're stocking the shelves, so the allegation goes. And until it finds and it essentially certifies an active ingredient producer, it took about a year for them to, to come onto the market. And they sued us for... Um, monopolization of the generic pharmaceutical, not 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 the branded, not the branded, and they argued that the generic was a separate relevant market. If you remember the relevant market concept right. from our previous episode, so we had a big fight as to whether That's the relevant market included <laughs> the brand and the generic. Well, the upshot of that uh, is we won before the district court. And the district court said there's no separate generic market. The Second Circuit said there may be and remanded it, and. We went through another year of discovery and updating, and on the courthouse steps, right before we were about to pick a jury, we settled the case. So yeah, it was it was big. But relevant to this episode is the fact that the allegation was we locked up the the only input supplier mm-hmm. that existed. So that kind of exclusive can allow you to monopolize the market. I can well, see that happening with you know hardware uh, technology companies. And uh, even software technology companies, if you have, you know, people who understand how to write a specific type of development language, and there's only a handful of those those people or those firms. So that's interesting to think. Absolutely. And and you have to, again, think a little bit more broadly like you do in almost every area of antitrust. Because the question is, okay, there may be only one company now, but can somebody else come in quickly? Right. You know, because if somebody else can get into the market next month. Right. Then you know if you lock them up for you know again let's be let's let's take it to an egregious example if you lock up a company and delay your competitor by an hour You're no big fine. deal a day probably no big deal right. a month probably no big deal at some point it becomes a bigger deal sure certainly and, a year <laughs> and certainly well in, in a year and then again we we that that was part of our fights back and forth as to whether whether they were really delayed a full um. year. Uh, whether it was only a few months, whether that those few months were de minimis, whether they were always going to be behind it anyway, and we would have achieved the first mover advantage anyway and been able to stock the shelves. So their ability or their inability to obtain greater market share was always hampered just because they were the second filer. Sure. All those issues got played out, and obviously you can tell which side of the fence I'm on on yeah. those issues. Yeah. But be that as it may... It can happen a lot, and you just have to understand, are you really locking up your only source? It could also work on the downstream, because if you think about it, let's say there's you know there's a few manufacturers, but there's only a few outlets that sell the product. Oh. It's a specialized type of a distribution chain. 
and you come to an agreement with the biggest seller of this particular product okay. and you agree with them that they will only sell your product mm. well now you may have other competitors but where are they going to get how are they going to sell their product through whom are they going to distribute their product right you've locked up essentially the only outlet available to the competition that could be a problem too okay and you know that is a um, that happens a lot especially with kind of big box stores or big sure. chains if you lock them up yeah. and you know there may be other mom and pops that sell whatever it is that we're talking about in the market but if you're going to be an effective competitor you need to be able to also sell through the through the retail chains and the big giants mm-hmm. and if they're locked up that could be a problem that could be a problem for the retail chain they could be you know involved as a co-conspirator but it can certainly be a problem for the company that did lock them up so again, I'm not saying you shouldn't, but you got to think about these issues before you do it. The the essential problem is because if you think about it, you're forcing them to compete again at two different levels, mm-hmm. both at kind of the manufacturing of the product that you compete with them, but also either at the downstream level or at the upstream level if we're talking about an input. And that the courts have said you can't force through an exclusive agreement someone to have to come in at two different levels of the market okay so generally there are a couple factors you want to take into account those factors include sort of how much of the market have you actually foreclosed again if you're foreclosing 20 30 percent of the market it's probably not too much of a big deal but if you're the 80 percent guy yeah someone's watching you right and (laughs) and well it's not only how much of the market you possess but also how much of the market are you let's take the downstream Okay, let's say I only own 40% of the manufacturing capacity. Not too big of a deal. But I lock up the retail chain that sells 80% of the products. Right. So I foreclosed 80% of the market. Yes. Wow. Okay. That could be a problem. Also, what's the duration? You know, again, if the exclusive is a day, a month, probably not too big of a deal. But if you sign them to a five year deal. Yes, that could be probably right. (laughs) Um, And again, even a month, you know, you know, you got to question why are you doing this, and you always, always need to ask, you know, the business folks, why are you doing this? And you got to have them honest. And sometimes it's because, you know, if we delay them by a month, they'll never get it onto the market. Well, okay, that tells you something. Yeah. Are there other exclusive contracts? I mean, is this something that the industry just accepts and everybody has? Well, if you know, if your competitors have exclusive with their guys, and <clears throat> you have an exclusive with your guys, I mean, if you look in. Go to Home Depot, go to Lowe's. You will see that there are a lot of these big chains. They want you only selling to them and not selling to their competition. So you will see brands in Lowe's that you will never see in Home Depot. Well, like Martha Stewart brand, you can buy only at Home Depot because she has an exclusive contract with Home Depot. Exactly. But but her competitors can sell through Lowe's, can sell through all the regional chains and stuff like that. So it's not too big of a problem. Right. So, um, So... you know, and I'm sure Lowe's has someone else that they've locked up, similar to Martha Stewart. That you know, and 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 therefore, if exclusive contracts are prevalent in the industry, <clears throat> it may be an indication that no one exclusive really is foreclosing too right. much of the market. Okay. As you rightly pointed out, what's your own market power? You know, if you're 20, 30 percent of the market, that's something. If you're an 80 percent player, you're that. You know the proverbial 800-pound gorilla. You gotta, you gotta think twice. Mm-hmm. Are there barriers? 
to getting into the market. You know, again, if it's easy to get in, if it's easy to get in at the at, at either the upstream or the downstream level, if it's easy to get in at the manufacturing, it just it ameliorates some of these concerns because it's it's less difficult uh, for your competitors to you know bring their own work to market. Yes. Uh, just as quickly. But if it's something, again, where there are constraints, then like with this FDA approval of right. the manufacturing of a controlled substance. Exactly. Those are some barriers. Those are some barriers. And it's not like anybody could have just made that active ingredient. It, it took some time. Right. And there was regulatory processes that had to be followed sure. before they would be approved. And then, again, here's a big one. You have to weigh the pro-competitive effects of an exclusive agreement. There's a lot of good reasons to enter into an exclusive agreement. There's efficiency. There's certainty. There's, you know, you know you're not going to get backordered because your your supplier is selling to your competitor. You know, and in fact, that was one of the key considerations in my clients entering into an exclusive. They were competing in a very um, difficult market against a brand that had been entrenched for 30 years. There had never been a generic. This was at the time a blockbuster jug back in the, I mean, when they introduced it, it was back in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was a $500 million market, which at the time was big. Mm-hmm. Now it seems quaint by drug markets. But um, but they wanted a surety of supply that they couldn't get otherwise. Um, and that's good for the consumer. It is good for the consumer because obviously the generic itself lowered the price of, sure. the, of the drug. But and having it on the shelves is... You needed, and if they were right. going to get back ordered, and there was going to be problems, and right. doctors and, and pharmacists were, were were going to be skittish about this, then maybe that drug would never have taken off, and consumers would have been the losers. So, are those pro competitive effects? Those are pro competitive effects okay. that you just need to weigh against the anti competitive effects. Put it into that stew that we yeah. talked about earlier, and see kind of you know does it does it outweigh does it outweigh it or not? I mean, it's a legitimate business justification, but again, not ev- just because you have a legitimate business justification does not mean you're going to win. A lot of courts will look okay, that's a legitimate business justification, but could you have achieved those objectives in a less restrictive manner? Almost a constitutional type of a. Uh, of a standard, and if you could have achieved those in a less restrictive manner, like by a requirements contract or something less oppressive, then a lot of times they will not give you the full credit for the legitimate business justification. And if there are some real anti-competitive effects, you will still lose. Oh wow! Okay. So that you know that's you know exclusivity, and there are a number of there are, I, every year there are a number and number of cases that are brought based on um, on exclusive contracts, exclusive dealing, and um, and the like. And any time you're going to deal, and just one point, ex- again, exclusive doesn't just because there's no word in the contract exclusive or sole or something like that does not mean it's not a de facto exclusive. There are times and there are cases that have been brought where the discount is so compelling, yeah. it's a de facto exclusive exclusive. So the agreement. intention was to create exclusive, whether or not the semantics were written into exactly. the contract. And the result was some sort of market ex- exclusivity. Yes. That was the result. And so a judge is going to see through any sort of semantic Absolutely. plays in any kind of contract. Absolutely. Just last year, the Third Circuit, basically, um, in, in just such a case, it was, it was really... Um, it was a it was a discount 
somewhat of a bundle discount, but the discount, the, the court analyzed it as an exclusive because the discount was so steep and so severe um, that they just basically said, you know, this is an exclusive, and they analyzed the case based on that. It caused somewhat of an uproar um, whether the analysis was, was correct or not and whether it really was that steep or not. You know, again, you, the debate can rage, but as a counseling perspective, especially for our audience here who wants to stay away from these issues or at least go into them with eyes wide open, sure. you got to be aware that just because you're not calling it an exclusive does not mean that a judge, jury, or antitrust enforcer down the line won't necessarily view it as such. Right. Okay. So let's get to one other type of non-price predation, and that is a refusal to deal. Okay. Now, we talked about it kind of last episode and, you know, sort of teased it where, you know, what does that mean? I, I, I'm not a, I have to deal with, any, with everyone, and that's not necessarily the case. But if you are a monopolist or you possess monopoly power, then there are going to be certain circumstances where, yeah, you can't say no. Really? Yep. And those would be? Ah, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> There are two situations. One's called the Aspen slash Kodak rule, and the other is called the Essential Facilities Doctrine. Okay. Now, let me throw one other legal term out. Uh, under a, a very, very old Supreme Court case um, called Colgate, the Colgate Doctrine basically says just because you're a monopolist, you do not have a duty to deal with whomever wants to deal with you. Well, that's so nice. Yes. It's your basic <laughs> capitalistic right of free choice, yes. right of whatever... It is your, you know, civil liberty, if you will, that you can pick with whom you will deal in We don't business. want to punish companies for success in the marketplace, Well, we right? certainly don't, and we don't want to force you to aid your competition. Sure. That's not what we're about. Okay. However, let's get to the exceptions to the rule. Okay. Okay. The exceptions to the rule is, now, I will talk about the Aspen skiing rule, and let me just lay out the facts of the case because it, it makes it a lot easier to visualize what this rule is about. And let me first also state that there is a lot of debate whether this rule is really still valid or not. But the Supreme Court has never actually said that they've overturned Aspen skiing. They have called it into question or applications of it into question. But it's still around. Plaintiffs still use it. And, you know, uh, you need to be aware of it. Right. So here are the... Here are the um, facts of the Aspen skiing. In Vail, Colorado, there were a few mountains. One company owned three of the mountains, and another company owned the fourth mountain. And for years and years and years, they had a joint marketing program where they marketed a joint lift ticket, where for one price, you can go on all four mountains. Well, one day, the owner of the three mountains woke up and basically figured out, why am I doing this? Why don't I just sell a ticket for my three mountains? I don't join the program. He can sell tickets to his one mountain and, you know, let's compete. Well, guess what? He did that and everyone bought the three mountain ticket. Of course, it's a better deal. Better deal. Nobody bought the one mountain discount. And the, the plaintiff went out of business okay, and sued for Section 2. Okay. Went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said it was an antitrust violation to cut off that competitor. Now, the reason it was an antitrust violation is because there was no 
other legitimate justification for cutting it off other than hoping and seeking the demise of the rival. Sure. There was no legitimate business justification. Right. So the takeaway has always been from Aspen skiing that if there is a long-standing relationship Mm -hmm. and that your departure from that relationship will exclude or significantly weaken a rival from the market and you're doing it without an adequate business justification, that will constitute um, a Section 2 violation, will constitute one of the exceptions to the Colgate rule because you have to continue to deal with that competitor. Okay. Now, one easy way around this is don't ever... Enter. Enter the relationship. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. Stay the bachelorette. Stay the bachelor, (laughs) you know? But... If you're going to enter into such a relationship and you realize that you are aiding your competitor and one day you want to wake up and sort of get divorced, uh, you better have darn good reason. Yeah. So that's that was exception number one. Exception number two is what we call the essential facilities doctrine. Okay. The essential facilities doctrine basically says you own something that is absolutely needed to compete in the market. And if that's the case, then you you have to be reasonable in providing it to your competition to use as well uh, in order to allow them to compete. Now, again, I know this is it sounds a little bit odd, but let me give you some examples to, to sort of frame it in your mind. Let's take the old, old cases, power lines. Right. I was okay. going to say infrastructure. Infrastructure. Broadband cables and exactly. power lines. You're right. Perfect. Those are all. These types of infrastructures, you're not going to string your own power lines. You're not going to erect your own towers. You're not going to create your own central offices for the for the telephone switches. I imagine cell phone towers are a big uh, um, bone of contention. That can be as well. Yeah. Um, any of these types of um, you know pipelines. Right. You know, uh, right. All of these types. It, it's just it is prohibitively expensive to replicate that infrastructure. Right. And so you. You have to allow your competition to rent it, use it. I mean, sure. you don't have to give it for free. Right. But it has to be on some non-discriminatory ter- terms. Now, you don't have to give them more favorable terms than you give to yourself. But again, you have to give them reasonable terms. And, okay. the, and, and the elements is essentially, do you control an essential fil- facility? Okay. Well, first, are you a monopolist? You so, know. you have this market share. You have the market you share. You have this infrastructure. Right. So, if you have the if you have the market share, if you have the market power, and you control the essential facility, then the question is: Can your competitor practically or reasonably duplicate that facility? Sure. If it can't, okay, let's go on to the next element. You're denying use of the facility, and again, that tends to be a big bone of contention because. Often you'll allow them. Now the question is whether you're allowing them reasonable access or not. Again, we can can fight till today to tomorrow there. But if you deny them access or reasonable access, and it is feasible for you to provide access to the facility, mm-hmm. then that can be a Section Two violation. Okay. But again, if it's not feasible to give them access, you know, tough. Right. Um, if you are giving them access, it's just they want essentially preferential treatment. Well, tough. Right. They don't get it. If they are just being cheap, they just want you to give up your infrastructure. But frankly, they could replicate it in you know without too much cost and without too much time 
elapsing, then again, tough, they, they have to do it. So those are the elements of the essential facilities doctrine. You're absolutely right. In, in It's come up in cable. It's come up in uh, tele, telephone communications. Right. It's come up in power lines. It's come up in, in natural gas pipelines. And oh, right. All, all of those types of facilities. And it can come up in, in sort of anything. It could, it, could be a, it could be a specialized warehouse. Um, it could be, you know, let's say... Could uh, it be train tracks? Logistical infrastructure. Absolutely. There are, you know, in the mortgage, in the the title industry, right? Mm -hmm. So generally, the way it used to be is you had this big warehouse with all the titles, and all the title companies had a... The good old fireproof warehouse. Yeah, and they had their little, you know, cubicles, and, you know, you sent it out to everyone, Mm -hmm. and whoever got the quote first got the, you know, was your title search title examination, they got the fee, whatever. Well, obviously, that the owner of that title... Place the owner of the had an essential facility because you couldn't you couldn't compete right. in the title search market unless you had a seat there. Right. So, so that's that was the uh, that's that's the refusal to deal. Those are the two basic concepts in refusing to deal. Other than that, pretty much you're good to go. Just because you're a monopolist, you don't have to deal with someone, be it a supplier be it a customer, and certainly be it a rival. I think that will probably do it for now. Okay. This has been Jay Levine from Porter Wright and Sarah Smith-Obers from Gut Check Analytics. Please follow me at Twitter at JLLevine, J-A-Y-L-L-E-V-I-N-E. I had to throw my middle initial in there for me to get the handle. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Love you to follow me there. Please message me with any ideas, suggestions, certainly if you want um, us to speak about a certain topic, um, please uh, let us know. And certainly and you can always email me directly at the letter J, J-L-E-V-I-N-E, at porterite.com. And please check back for future podcasts at our um, blog source of antitrustlawsource.com. Uh, thank you for joining me, Sarah. Thanks, Jay. Have a great day. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.